I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, writer Greg Airbar to the show. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Tammy. It's very much a pleasure to be here. And I, I have to point out that I always say Tyara because that's the way Laverne said it on Laverne and Shirley in the episode <laughs> when they were on the game show for those who watch that. It's been a while since I've seen it and remembering the reference, it's <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> well, get used to it because I do that kind of strange referencing throughout. So if you please need- do, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, my God. I do it all the time to some people and they're like, I don't know. <laughs> what is she talking about? <laughs> my wife and I break into song a lot. When somebody says something that's a lyric, we'll start singing it. And the kids are like, please stop. Please. No. <laughs> Well, you're a writer first and and foremost, and and a lot of people probably, you know, I love to tell people, I love having individuals on the show who are unsung heroes of different projects, and when you get to write for an attraction, or a show, or a film, or a TV show, or or a special, a TV special, uh, it's one of those things where I I can only imagine the process of, of working on that specifically. So you've worked on a couple of different specials for Disney as a writer. But can you tell me where you got the inspiration to become a writer? As a as a young child, were you somebody who loved to write skits or perform them? You know what? That's true. I, I did do that as a kid. I did do skits in school. And sometimes I would start a skit like in the fourth grade and I had no idea how to end it. Uh, and, and it was like so embarrassing. And we just like would just stop and sit in our, our chairs and do, we're done now. Um, and we would have relatives come over and we'd put on uh, shows, that kind of thing. Uh, we, we, th- we'd gather the kids together and play let's do let's make a deal and have uh, you know we would we would reenact the game shows. So we would do that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the, one of the uh, girls in the neighborhood, played Lucy and I played Charlie Brown on on uh, tape. We made tapes where we would read the comics and act out that. So I always liked doing that. And ever since uh, the, around the fourth grade, I always wrote stuff and I would make little books and staple them together and draw horrible pictures in them that told little stories. So it was something that I always liked to do. And then when I got into, like, I loved Peanuts, I loved Archie comics, those kind of things, I would start, like most fans do, I would make my own um, and create my any, any kind of a cartoon or a thing that I like, I would start creating my own adventures and things like that. So I always enjoyed writing, and it got to the point where in, in when I was getting into junior high and into high school, when we had to do essays, uh, even in college, if it was read out by somebody else, by the teacher or someone, they said, oh, that's one of Greg's, because it always had a certain kind of a style to it, usually a funny turn of phrase or something. Uh, when I was in um, when I was in drama class, I'd reenact things that were on my records because my record collection is very dear to me. So I would act out the scene with Prince John and Sir Hiss when they're in the uh, caravan and the taxes, beautiful, you know, with the crystal ball, I acted that out. I did the scene with uh, Blackbeard and uh, and uh, Steve Walker. That's because it's on the record album. And then when my kids were little, and a friend of ours, Stacia Martin, who, I'm, uh, who you should have on the show if you haven't, she's a she's a dear person. Um, we for her, and the kids had memorized Pollyanna because we watched it billions of times. 
So the three of us acted out the Mr. Pendergast scene and the kids were that age. So it was just, and we have it on tape and it's just so cute seeing my little son, you know, being Jimmy Bean and all that stuff. So we always did that. And I think if you grow up listening to and, and watching and hearing and reading all those things, it just sort of comes. So I always liked, always liked to write. I'm always making obscure references. Uh, I love slipping them into things. If you, even if you read brochures I wrote or uh, advertising copy, I have slipped references to the Flying Nun into copy for Soren. Who needs wings to fly? Was a slogan I used for Soren. Um, that was the theme song to the Flying Nun. It had lyrics, and it got through because who would know that but me? You know, things like that. Sometimes I would just slip them in and just for fun. Writers like to do fun things like that. What was one of your first gigs for Disney? Like, what what did they see prior that they said, hey, we'd like you to work uh, as a part of our team? Or did you submit a resume and that's how they kind of heard about you? I wanted to work for Disney since I was about 12 or 13 because when we went, I grew up in South Florida and our our school used to take bus trips to, to Walt Disney World. And the first time I ever saw it, saw the monorail, saw the park, saw the contemporary and the Polynesian, I said, I have to be part of this. Now, I always loved Disney through the television show, through the movies, and especially through the records. Because before video, you couldn't take home and have those shows and movies in your home every day anytime you wanted without records. So they they spoke to you. And I still think kids' lives are enriched by hearing audio versions of things, hearing stories acted out and told on in audio. You know, radio drama is a great thing. Um, and some podcasts are bringing it back. But I loved the park so much, and I thought, this is, this is a living thing that's Disney, that I wanted to be part of it. And that's something that everybody who knew me knew all through school. That's what I wanted to do. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it. But when, and I was always sending resumes and, and I, you know, going for interviews, trying to get in somehow. And I, I studied film and television in college. I interned in commercial production in Miami, uh, still trying to see what the Disney can, I worked for some people who had worked for Disney, still making connections here and they're still writing and calling and talking to people that I had connected with. There are people at Disney, uh, either either currently or formerly, who I have known for decades, and they knew me from letters I first wrote back in the day when I was, you know, wanted to get to know them. Wanted to, same as you, asking questions. How did they do this? What was this? Why was this done? You know, who's this voice? That kind of thing. And I always wanted to do that. Uh, the very first thing I started in the resort area, and I was working on a lot of different things. And I, I was also writing there, but it wasn't officially as a writer. Um, but what I did do, it was for, it was for the, the, you know, the people who take the reservations. And one of the things that they ran into, and I think this was sort of the turning point for me. One of the things they ran into is when they started the Caribbean resort, they, that was the first it was, it was called a moderate resort now, but when it opened, it was, it was basically a value resort because it was the least expensive resort on property. And that was because it was totally, almost totally no frills. It's gotten less like that. 
Um, now it's the rooms are more decorated. They have more full service. But at the time, there was only pizza in the room. The rooms were not heavily decorated. And that was not on monorail service. It wasn't as close to the parks. There was a lot that made that less deluxe than people were used to back in that day. And so it was difficult to express that to people. And they were arriving and finding out, well, why don't I have a monorail? Why don't we have uh, this? Why don't we have that? So we had to do a training uh, video that taught the hundreds of people who were dealing with the, uh, the, the callers how to s explain that. And so we created a, a sort of a, a sitcom, uh, a mock sitcom, and a difficult relative. And the purpose of the difficult relative was to be the one who complained about everything. And then we had on the bottom of the screen, like Sesame Street or Electric Company, we had the points we wanted to make because every time she complained, it, it would be explained and someone would repeat it because she was hard of hearing. So that way we would have it said twice. So that was a 30-minute sitcom, but it was a comedy with a laugh track and music and a commercial, and it was just loads of fun, and it was it was done for practically nothing. We shot it at 2 in the morning because, you know, we couldn't get on those locations while there were guests there. And, you know, I, I mean, it was, it was, it was like uh, guerrilla filmmaking. We did a shot from the top of uh, an overpass on I-4 to make it look like a crane shot. I mean, we were just insane. But that film really helped get me a little bit noticed. Um, but even then, it didn't happen overnight. It was a matter of me constantly sending, anytime I wrote something, you know, I would write, I wrote a newsletter for that department, but I made it funny because I thought these people have a tough job. Um, instead of just talking about you know, the, the, the news and little snippets of stories and recipes and things like that, I said, let's make this a comedy newsletter. Let's find fun and funny things to do and puzzles and, and make it light and all that. And, you know, let's keep the more, let's keep morale up. Let's have fun things to do and uh, that kind of stuff. So and every time I would do that, I'd send it around. I'd always send it to the people. I always tried to establish context. In other words, you, you've got to you've got to be tenacious. You've got to continually open your network up and talk to people because there are no pathways. There really are no pathways. Um, and I was constantly freelancing. Some of the first freelancing I did for Walt Disney World officially was for merchandise. My first piece of merchandise was a can of golf balls that had Goofy on them. It was called Goofy's Tea for Two. Uh, two golf balls in a little can. And it's a guarantee that your your game will be better than Goofy's. And that was my first one. But from then on, I did an awful lot for merchandise. Uh, probably my most, my most visible piece of merchandise that's still sold is the Wonderland tea line. Uh, I love Alice in Wonderland, so that was a dream job. And they still sell Wonderland tea. It's one of their best-selling products. And though I'll never have a window on Main Street, because who am I? Uh, it's very exciting that on Main Street, there was a window devoted to Wonderland tea with a Cheshire cat and a chair and a, and a, a, a looking glass and all with the tea all over it. And it was like, this is a dream for me to have that and have the tea on display in the Emporium and all. And the tea boxes are loaded with trivia. 
They're loaded with reference, the kind of things I love to do. Loaded with references to the movie, pieces of song lyric, uh, quotes, things like that. And if you know the movie and you know and you watched it, you get it. And people just responded to it really well. Uh, and my wife loves tea, so it was just a perfect thing all the way around. Very, very happy with that. So that's kind of the sort of thing. But meanwhile, I've always wanted to get into marketing. But before that, I worked in the resort design department, which became Attractions Merchandise. And there I was naming things. You know, you, they were opening a resort. And they said, we need names for things. Uh, like, we need a, um, that's my little doggy, if you hear that. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you go to uh, Port Orleans, my wife grew up in uh, Louisiana, so she helped me. And we, we came up with hundreds of names for things. But uh, the, the name Jackson Square Gifts and Desires, uh, things like that, we, had, we named the sea serpent. His name is Scales. Uh, that's at the pool. A Doubloon Lagoon is the name of the pool. Laundry on the levee, things like that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So you never know. And then that led to working in marketing and uh, and pretty much everything that they asked me to do, I would do. And could be doing the map. You know, we did the very first guide maps because we they used to be books. And I and the art director... Uh, a guy named Rick Varley and the account manager, a guy named Tim Kofal, the three of us said, let's let's pitch doing them as maps because then you can see the whole property. You can see the whole park in one thing. You don't have to turn pages. And at the time, some people were reluctant. They said, oh, but if we look at maps, we can't see what where we're walking. And we actually heard that, you know. But now that's all they have is maps. They don't have booklets anymore. So it was that kind of thing. But to me, that's important. And when I was walking through the park and seeing people holding those maps, my heart soared because that's something we, we create. That's just as important as making Pinocchio to me. You know, that's I've touched people's lives, you know. And so where's that jump into um, TV specials? Because that seems even more like a crazier type of project to work on, especially with the Easter parades and the Christmas parades. It seems like it has a sort of structure, but it's also live. So in, in a way, and so you kind of have to, you know, work with things as they come and as things go by. So how, how did you join on to be a part of one of those types of projects and what was the first one like well the the marketing division was was in a state it was it was the grand days of the expansion of marketing at the time it was a, it was a remarkable time because in the in the there they didn't advertise at all originally Walt Disney World did barter ads where uh, maybe a tie-in with a sponsor uh, another another brand would kick in the money or something, but they advertised very, very little until they did an 800 number ad with, believe it or not, Lauren Bacall's voice, Walt Disney World. And they call that the Blitz because the phones just kind of went nuts uh, because they had an 800 number for a brief time. Anyway, the marketing department grew and grew and grew at, during that period. And the idea of having a Christmas parade was not only entertaining, but also promotional because Macy's had Thanksgiving, but there really wasn't much on Christmas. And I worked with another writer named Dennis Shalifor. It was originally called the Very Merry Christmas Parade, 
because the parade in the park was the Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Parade and then Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. But we eventually changed the name to Disney, the Disney's Christmas Day Parade for several years. That's what we wanted to call it because we wanted to say just like Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Now it's, I don't know, every year it's called like Mickey's, Mag you know, Disney's Magical Glorious Happy Peppy, whatever. It always has a, a title that's very long. But the Christmas Day Parade kind of said it. Um, the parades were there to promote things. But we also wanted to make them entertaining as well. So there, there was a give and take. We had some of the best. And so since that was part of it was part of marketing and advertising, you know, we had we had people from television working on it. But we also had people from accounts who had certain things we had to cover. So since I'd worked on radio, I'd worked on TV commercials and campaigns. And, you know, I wrote the first um Animal Kingdom spot, not the one that was on regular television, but the one that was in the rooms inviting guests to preview it that actually predated the spot. Things like so I wrote a lot of TV and I, I said, well, I'd like to work on the parades. And they said, OK, um, you know, and I and I said, that'll be that'll be fine. And it, it was just a transition into that. And when you work on it, it is a 24 hour a day job because. Just like in any other television, you deal with different color pages in the script. You have constant changes. And because it was live, you had to change the script right up until the day it was shot. And it was shot live. And there were two, actually, parades. They shot one on tape two days before. And the reason they did that was because they had that for the armed forces overseas and they also had it in case anything happened like there were torrential rains or something on christmas day because they had you know what could they do because it was on like from 10 a.m to noon but from that 10 a.m to noon it really was live so it was a combination of what was going on on main street and what these what they called video packages were that they would throw to so the p video packages were put together in advance during three, four months beforehand. And then there were the occasional entertainment song things that were shot independently too. So if you saw a special guest doing almost a music video somewhere, you knew that wasn't live because they couldn't possibly be doing something that was edited. Like when we had the Wiggles, which was a big deal to me. I liked the Wiggles. In fact, I said, oh, Greg's the, the Wiggles fan. Ask him. And I they were singing Hot Potato, Hot Potato, which was their big hit. But they left Mosh Banana out. And I said, you got to do Mosh Banana. And they said, OK, we'll do it, have it done for you. You know, that kind of thing. But the Wiggles were shot in, in Fantasyland about three weeks before the parade was done. And sometimes when they do pre, I don't know, I think for a while they were pre-recording it. I'm not sure what they do now because it's become more of a musical extravaganza. Um they were shooting it the first week of December because we had gone to those tapings as well. But when I was doing it, it was live and it was very exciting. And the the very first hosts were Joan London from Good Morning America and Mike Douglas. That was in 1981, I believe. When I did it, it was Regis Philbin and Joan London. And Joan London was the consummate professional. She was unflappable. And that job looks much easier than it is because she, nothing, 
She just moves. Anything happens, she just knows flawlessly and effortlessly how to make it seem like she's just talking. And a lot is going on, and she's back timing in her head. And, but it's it's something she does all the time, and she also she just does. And Regis Philbin is a a uh, off the cuff speaker. He's not not a script guy. In fact, he doesn't like to use a script. It restricts him. So I was nervous because this was the first time Regis ever actually was a co-host. He used to be the guy on the street uh, who talked to the guests, which he loved to do. And he also, we had this running thing where he had a crush on Cinderella. So he'd be like riding on the coach and banging on the coach with his microphone, you know, and that was the running gag that he was always trying to meet Cinderella. So year after year, that's what Regis did. So Regis was very, very um, ambivalent about, he wanted to do a great job, but he was going to be scripted. He could wing it a little bit, but he still had to stay within a certain a certain parameter because you simply have to. So we sat down with them a couple of times. They have a script read, just like for a TV show. And the book is a, is a, uh, a big loose leaf binder and it has two sides to it. Um, I wrote 52 pages of fun facts, sent them to the archives for Dave Smith at the time and Robert Tiemann to approve um, because I love that sort of thing. So when, when you're watching a parade and you hear, it's like the color on a, on a ball game. When you hear stats and facts that seem to be rattling off while you're watching something, that's on that page. And then the script that, that they have to follow because they have to introduce something or something specifically has to be like there's going to be a marching band or something that's coming on the street that's necessary to explain what you're about to see, that's on the right page, along with the throws to commercials and the throws to the video packages. That's on the right page. And they have to go together. And so when you revise them, they have to also go together when they change color. So, you know, you can just imagine when you reprint them and everybody has to grab the, the notebooks and change the notebooks and all that stuff. So, I mean, I'm working all crazy hours and all this stuff, but it was loads of fun. And and when you actually do the show, it goes feels like it goes by in five minutes. So you also have a teleprompter. And and a Chiron, uh, you know, for people who um, are um, uh, hearing impaired, you know, you have the closed captioning. So they, the closed captioning is going, and you you submit the script in advance for that. And then you, uh, I sat with the with the teleprompter guy, who is typing in things and making sure that it's all correct. And it's and I had to make sure that it had to come up at the right time. So I'm working with him making sure that when they have to say it and they might look up because where they're looking is key as well, because there's a reason there's two people because one's doing one thing, one's doing another thing. For example, they'd have what they call a character flood. And that's when 30, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 characters just start walking at random down the street. And sometimes that is done for television. You know, the parade is plussed for television. So, they have to be able to identify them and they also have to be able to explain who they are and where they're from and things like that. So the one who's looking at the street and sometimes they will be facing the street or sometimes there's a monitor that they can look at because the street's behind them. They were really there. Um, 
the other person is looking at the notebook and saying, well, that's so-and-so from so-and-so. One of the things I was very proud of is that Prince John and King Leonidas from Bedknobs of Broomsticks look almost identical. Um, if you look at them in two, in, side by side, they don't. But year after year, um, it kind of bothered me. It's like, let's let's make it specific. So I put photographs in the notebook and Sean London said, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Finally, someone is like, and I said, he's the one with the yellow vest and a little thing around his neck. And he's the one with the, you know, so they could tell just like Chippendale has the, the, the noses and all that kind of stuff. And that's the sort of thing you would also tell viewers. Here's that kind of thing. And viewers love it. The other thing to do in this parade is since Regis was kind of new to it, I watched live with Regis and Kathy Lee and took notes and studied every day what he said, not Dana Carvey style, because Dana Carvey was doing his routines at the time, but things about his family, just various kinds of ways he spoke and wrote the script to him. So it was sounded like him talking, it wasn't just some guy doing it. And he, and he did, he appreciated it. He said, this is me, this is me. And you know, he really noticed that. I even brought in at the time he was selling the snack crackers on, I even brought those into the, the script read. And he wanted to make it good. And then one of the things Regis does when he likes you is he teases you and makes fun of you and yells at you. That means he likes you. And, um, and if he doesn't like some people, he never even teases them. So you kind of tell. So he called me Gregor and, you know, he said, did I do that right? Did I do that right? Gregor, you know, he's going to say, you know, and I said, no, you did it beautiful. You know, he says, well, I want to make the joke work. So if you hear the lame jokes and the puns, you know, he would, he wanted them to work. I actually had two friends read the script ahead of time, pretending to be Regis and Joan to make sure I got it right, because you, it's nice to have that, you know, because then you can go in and fix it. So I really wanted these things to be really, really perfect. Um, and then you just sort of let it go and see what happens, you know, and there's there's little things that happen here and there, but you never know on the air. Now, and the first one I did was 1991 Christmas, and that was notable because there were two parades at the same time. It was the first time they ever tried that. And Disneyland was is always in it too, but they're always a se separate segment, and usually they are pre-recorded because it's a different time zone. This was two parades at Walt Disney World, and the reason for that was it was the year of the surprise celebration parade where we had the giant balloons, the giant Roger Rabbit balloon and all. It was a sort of Mardi Gras look. And that was really tall. And they couldn't really fit that. Um, well, they couldn't fit it at the studio because Disney Hollywood Studios, which was Disney MGM Studios at the time. And they couldn't put that down Main Street because they'd have to take down the decorations. So they thought, somebody said, well, when, why don't we do both parades? We'll do, we'll do surprise celebration in Magic Kingdom, where it is right now, and we'll do the, the uh, Christmas parade in, in uh, what is now Hollywood Studios. So what they did is they pre-recorded the studio Christmas one because Regis and Joan couldn't be there and they, we couldn't, sh you know, shoot back and forth because it was only one crew. 
And that was pre-recorded, and I wrote the script um, to match it. And but they still read that live. So you, what you were watching that morning was them on Main Street in in Magic Kingdom calling the parade on Main Street, the surprise celebration parade. But then they would go cut to the taped parade at what is now Hollywood Studios, and they would be describing it. With, as scripted, but it was the script was written to time, so it would it would appear that they were describing that precisely that way. I mean, it was incredibly complicated, but it got pulled off. We were so proud of how that turned out, and Regis was so thrilled that he was able to do it because the guy's a pro, and he was nervous, but he didn't need to be. And Joan was flawless. In fact, I remember during one of the commercials that she used to do commercials for Vaseline Intensive Care Lotion, where they, they used to crunch the, the leaf. And he said, do you really use any of that stuff? And she says, I won't, I won't do a commercial unless I actually use the product. So, well, that's, that's very impressive. Because, you know, they do chat during commercials and you wonder, well, what do they talk about? Now, now tell me a little bit about when you're writing a book, how long does it usually take you to create something out of so many interviews? Because with Mouse Tracks, um, you had a huge list of individuals that you got to interview. A lot of them have passed, you know, Fess Parker, um, Robert Sherman, uh, Marnie Nixon. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you were, you know, how long the process is for that and, and how long it took to do all of these interviews? It took roughly four years to do the entire book because between Tim Hollis and I, and Tim was the was the perfect partner because he lives in Alabama and he writes for magazines and he has written some wonderful, wonderful books that I highly recommend uh, about area attractions in the Southeast that are no longer there, like Dixie Before Disney. And he wrote a terrific book called uh, Part of Your Complete Breakfast about animated characters and various characters that were connected with your cereal boxes. It's a beautiful book. And another one called Toons in Toyland. Tim is a terrific writer. And he's also an intrepid investigator. So between the two of us, we were tracking people down and doing interviews and splitting the work. So, But I, you know, we both had full-time jobs. And so it, it, it's hard to say how long a book would have taken if either of us had nothing else to do but the book. But it took about four years altogether to get the whole thing put together because you have to you have to do an outline. You have to plan it out. You have to assemble all of the interviews. They're all separate because if you look at the way the book is structured, it's got about 40 interviews and they're separate from the book's narrative because we didn't want to interrupt the narrative with them. Because people were, it was vital, we felt, to tell the stories of a lot of these people. And also the people who were well-known, like Fess Parker and Annette Funicello and uh, some other ones, we wanted to tell their stories from a different point of view. Like, no one talked about Fess Parker wanting to be an opera singer and his classical music training and his record label and things like that. And, and the same thing with Annette. We talked more about her recording and, and things like that. So... But people like Terry York and Dal McKinnon and Roby Lester, people like that were so proud that you can, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, the internet services have used mousetracks. And I'd like it if sometimes they see it, they cite it. Like Wikipedia will list mousetracks as a source for Roby Lester. And I'm thrilled that her name is on Wikipedia because of the book, because there is somebody who she thought she'd be forgotten. And, and, 
she found out she had fans in her last few years that people loved her because she was the Disneyland story reader. And she, when Tinkerbell rang the bell, you turned the page. She was also Jessica on Santa Claus is Coming to Town. So, so for so that's about long. I, I would say a book like that might take a year, maybe even less. Except for the the, the interviews are always what are difficult because you have to be you have to be there when they're there. Uh, when I interviewed Fess Parker, I was waiting to get time with him, and when I finally did get him on the phone, it was at what used to be the Virgin Megastore at Downtown Disney uh, on a payphone back when they had payphones, because uh, I think, no, I don't even know if it was a payphone. It might have been my cell phone, but I had to go to a quiet area so I could hear him. And that's where I actually conducted the interview with Fess Parker. Uh, fascinating interview. Dal McKinnon, I don't know how much time you have, <laughs> but Dal McKinnon is a story in itself. I, uh, he's, he was, he's one of the greatest actor, character actors and voice actors. And... Uh, Dal came to Florida to, um, to, he can't, he's kind of a, of an eccentric guy. He was a very eccentric guy. And he, he grew this great big Grizzly Adams beard and wore this kind of funny hat. And he came to Florida to visit. And we set up uh, that he had a hotel room at uh, one of the all-stars Tim and I and a guy named Jim Hollyfield, we all pooled our resources because Dal seemed like he wasn't quite, you know, where he had been at one time. And we wanted and he really wanted to come visit. Now, Dal McKinnon is the voice for those who don't know. Um, he did many, many Disney voices. Uh, most notably, if you go to the American Adventure, he's Benjamin Franklin. And you, you can also hear him in um, Ben Nobs and Broomsticks. He's this, uh, the um, the bear who uh, who's fishing. He's in Mary Poppins. He, he's the one of the reporters. He's the guy on the carousel. He's um, I believe he's the fox. It's being chased. He does an enormous amount of voice. He's in Lady and the Tramp, and he's everywhere. And on Disneyland records, he's on at least a dozen of them or more. So and and for uh, for TV fans, he was the voice of Gumby and he was the voice of Archie. And Mr. Weatherby and many other characters for filmation. So Dal Mc and he was in the birds in that scene where they're in the diner and the unfortunate thing happens at the gas pumps. He's the uh, the cook who's looking out the window. The diner owner. That's Dal also in a lot of movies on camera. Anyway, Dal came to to Florida, and we wanted to get him to American Adventure. Now he sort of makes his own way to places. And I was going to bring him into Epcot myself, but he talked his way into Epcot. I don't know how he did it. And I was like, how did he do that? But he just got in and he must have told the people who he was and they let him go in there. So fortunately, there was a guy over at American Adventure who was a fan of his and he found him a waistcoat and he actually played the role for the people. So these people who were happened to be there on that day got to see the guy who did the voice of Ben Franklin actually introducing it in the role of Ben Franklin just for that day, maybe for three or four performances. So this was the one time in this man's life that he ever got to see the attraction, probably the biggest thing he ever was part of. Um, when we found him there, we took him around the park and 
he was up for everything. They used to have the Shakespeare players in the UK pavilion, and they picked him to be part of that. And they were like, and he, he just went kind of like way over the top. He, and they were, were like, who is this guy? Because he was a wild man. He was hysterically funny. And afterwards, when they found out who he is, they were so thrilled, the, the actors. And I mean, it was like, my gosh, this guy's legendary. He gave a presentation at Disney University. And um, when we, we took him to the Mary Poppins breakfast, 1900 Park Fair, and he he was talking to the to Bert and to Mary and Poppins and all of these things. It was it was a phenomenal thing. But he also, you know, you had to keep a close watch on him because he would just go off and 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 just go everywhere and just he was just he. It's hard to explain what a what a um, what kind of a person he was. You had to direct him and bring him around and take him places. And I bought him a new hat because that old hat really had seen better days and. Uh, and that kind of thing when we were at the studios. But he was an original. And he was waiting for his next big thing. He kept saying the creator of Gumby was going to have a new show. And it was going to be. And he had a new idea for the rainbow tree and all this stuff. It never quite happened for him again. You know, he was well into his late 70s, early 80s. And um, he, we finally got him, you know, got him on a plane because we wanted to make sure he got there well. But a sweet man, a talented man, and so incredibly grateful for getting that opportunity. So being able to do that for him was beyond a dream come true. Same thing with Roby Lester. You know, when we were able to reach out to her and find her, she lived on a, a small small piece of farmland in, uh, in Fillmore, California, and, and have her contact people and find out how beloved she was it, it you know it added years to her life because she was dying of leukemia and she was going in for gamma globulin treatments and she'd have good days and bad days and you know we took the kids to her house and she got to know them and she read disney books to them it's like oh my gosh it's a disneyland story reader reading to them and when she passed we cried because this lady you know we grew up with this lady so writing this book was you know, not something I did for money by any stretch. You know, I did it because it was something that came out of my heart and soul. These these people meant a lot to me. Finding out who they were, finding out what they did, what they contributed, and sharing that with the world was extraordinary. Being able to tell people there are there are contributors out there, there are legendary contributors out there, and two three people who we uh, got into the book, became Disney legends as a result of our circulating the manuscript. Now, there was a committee for Disney legends, and among those are people like Stacia Martin, who had them on their list. But circulating the manuscript brought their contributions to the attention of various people in the company. And those three people were Tutti Camerata, who is a just a genius, he was the musical director of the record label, and um, he's a whole enormous amount of contributions in himself. He's a brilliant man, um, was responsible for the Annette sound, um, helped develop that. And then Ginny Tyler, who was the voice of the little girl squirrel in Sword in the Stone. She was the original Wicked Witch in the early Snow White ride. She, you can hear her on the Tiki Room pre-show. She was 
on the West Coast. She was on the Mickey Mouse Club in 62 when they were syndicated it. Um, on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, she was Jan of Jan and Jace on Space Ghost. Um, and in Dr. Doolittle, which I mentioned earlier, she was Polynesia the Parrot. So she did a lot of voices, and uh, she knew Walt, and she got to be a legend. And Jimmy Johnson, who we also edited his life story for a book called Inside the Whimsy Works, he became a legend um, through our efforts in sending this thing around to legal and to the archives. Because, in fact, someone called me and said, how does Tootie feel about Disney, you know, was was it a was it a a fond remembrance for him? You know, because some people have um, different feelings about Disney when they've left, and he but he left to start his own company, and his company is where Sunset Sound is where a lot of Disney recordings were made, and and the albums were actually mastered. Mary Poppins, the grooves were cut. At, at Sunset Sound. It was mixed there. It was produced there. And that's on Sunset in Cherokee, and it's still there. His son runs it. The beach movie music was 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 done there. The um, the Doors recorded their first album there. And also The Monkey's Uncle with the Beach Boys, all of those things. A lot of the Disney records were made there. And that was all Tootie's doing. Um, in fact, once they realized through our books that Sunset Sound was such a part of Disney history, they started recording there again. And both Frozen soundtracks, the vocals for them were recorded. Dina Menzel recorded Let It Go at Sunset Sound. I, I, I do want to mention, I hope our listeners go ahead and, and purchase a copy of the book. I'll put a link in the description below. But before we wrap up our interview, I have three Disney-themed questions I ask to each and every single guest I have on the show. So I call them my Fab Three questions. So the first question is my Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Off to our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Wow. Cinderella. And finally, our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Well, again, I got to go to Alice in Wonderland um, because that's my favorite movie, my favorite record album. And the theme from that, the way it's arranged on the record is just beautiful. And I can listen to it over and over and over and over again. Um, I mean, I love the way it's done in the film. I love how it's weaved through the score. Um, and I love how I love the lyrics and how it, it's kind of like over the rainbow in a way. And it's probably intended to be. But uh, over the rainbow is a song about being lost. Um, Allison, it, it's it's a it's a it's a sad um, kind of wistful song. Alice in Wonderland is, is a song about uh, exploration. And it's about it's like like we keep talking about. It's about curiosity. I mean, it really it's it's so that's what's so brilliant. Like the Sherman Brothers, it's so simple and yet it says so many things. Where do stars go? Where is the crescent? And I love just behind the tree. You know, where is the path? Where is the rabbit hole? And when my son was little, and you know, and we got everything of Alice we could on DVD. He used to go hunting for the rabbit hole. We, we went to the one of the Disney vacation clubs uh, at one point, and he, he would see a hole in a hedge or something. And I did that as a kid, too. You know, 
it, it was the idea of passing through passing into another world through a little doorway like that is just so cool. I Greg, we we have to talk more at some other point because there's just so many stories you have and I love them all and I'm so grateful you came on my show today and we finally got to talk after so long of being, you know, messaging one another. So, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. This is so much fun. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that cuz you know, I I have a tendency to ramble. So, if you if you enjoyed that, um I'm grateful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I do the same thing too, but it was so fascinating. And again, I'll let our listeners know that in the show notes, I'll put Greg's link to his book and also to his website so you could check out a little bit more about what he's done and I'm sure if you want to reach out to him he'll be answer he'll be able to answer any questions you have too so yeah I'm on Facebook and I've got a little um a little YouTube channel where I I share some of the recordings that I've got in my collection and fun stuff like that so anywhere you want to find me I'm usually there thank you so much Greg it was so great to talk to you (laughs) thank you Tammy this has been a pleasure and a little shout out to our friend Andrea who is a doll to go among mad people. Oh, you can't help that. Most everyone's mad here. (laughs) 